Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Welcome to It's All Journalism. This is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. Actually, we're going to be switching gears a little bit. It's tangentially digital media. Uh, joining me in studio again is Jason Fraley. Welcome to the podcast. Back to the podcast, Jason. Thanks for having me back. Jason is the entertainment editor. He's the uh, movie critic at WTOP. He's also a co-host of the Capital Culture podcast. This special podcast is actually sort of a crossover event where we're going to be posting it in both places and sort of sharing our year-end, or I should say Jason's year-end countdown of the top uh, 10 movies that he saw last year. And uh, if you if you listen to last week's podcast, we actually did a top 10 list of our, our top 10 most popular episodes, our, our most downloaded episodes. And this is where I'm going to put a little wrinkle in the the digital media aspect. Because I'm a digital journalist and I spend my whole day looking at data analytics and the the most important stories are the ones that get the most clicks, since I'm not a movie critic like Jason, I'm instead going to be relying on the numbers. And I'm going to be counting down the top 10 money earners ah. as, a, as a contrast yeah. to your list. See how many crossovers there are and uh, see what the people know, but what the critic knows better. <laughs> I tried to include a little of both in this list. That's one of my pet peeves, but sometimes you get these critics lists at the end of the year that they don't take into account some of the, the big grocers of the year, and I, I think that's a little lazy. I, I'd like to, I tried to represent a little of the art and the mainstream and movies that came out throughout the year, not just the ones that came during the awards rush. So. So, well, before we get in, get into the list, let's talk about your role as, as a critic and, you know, what is it you look for in a good movie? I'm a huge movie buff, so I'm making constant, bizarre, crazy, you know, um, movie references to everything I've seen in the past from all the great movies. So originality is one of the things, obviously, like, and I feel like we live in such a sequel culture now of franchise building that it uh, kind of bums me out that we drop in midway through the movie and uh, exit before it's really over a lot of times with some of the sequels. So an original idea will, will initially grab me. But I'm also looking at, you know, crazy symbolic things in, that the director's doing in the background and camera moves. Like, I'm picking up on all of this stuff, whether the, the faces are half lit to symbolize someone's, you know, dual personality or whether their wardrobe is, is uh, symbolic in the colors they're wearing, as we might talk about later with Get Out. So I'm looking for a lot of deep artsy stuff as well. But honestly, I think you can you can go overboard in that sometimes. I think I think a great movie should also work as a surface level experience. I think when you're sitting in the theater, the movies that work the best are the ones you don't even 
even really notice that you've been in the theater and suddenly it's over. Um, if you're looking around saying, I've been sitting here for a long time, then <laughs> usually uh, that happened with me at Star Wars, actually, which I liked. But I did notice I'd been in the theater for a while. Same with the Blade Runner remake. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I think if, if you're engrossed and, and, and riveted throughout the, the first time watch, I think that's, the mo- that's equally as important as the symbolic layers that you can go back and watch a second time. But I do think, to me, the greats like the Hitchcocks and, you know, of the world are the ones that, that can really grab you for a suspenseful ride the first time, but then you go back 20 times later, you're noticing all the symbolic layers. Do you think uh, 2017 was a good year for movies? Every year I'm like, yeah, wow, that was a pretty good year because you know you think back on all of them. But I thought it, there was a there was some there were some big great blockbusters and some really good you know artfully made movies too, and and some were a little of both. But I I gotta say that 2017 for me was an odd year in terms of I feel like this is one of the most difficult years to predict Oscar-wise. I feel like there's no clear front runner this year compared yeah, to past years. I mean, last year La La Land got a bunch of buzz and eventually was upset but by Moonlight, but you know, that was the big, you know, leading horse in the horse race. And usually there's there's at least one or two or three movies that race to the top like that, but man, if you look at a lot of the end of the end of the year, you know, critics groups and and things that are voting, like, there's no clear favorite this year. So I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch. I think several different movies could take it. Okay, well, let's go ahead and, and dive into your list. What's, what's your number 10? Kind of to, our, to our, our point, what I was saying earlier is, you know, I didn't want it just to be you know the big rush of of you know critical favorites that come at the end of the year that no one's no one's ever seen you know and before the Oscars. So I wanted to get a big blockbuster in cracking the top ten. So I, I put Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins. I I know this is my own fault, but this is my own failing in life. I'm not a huge superhero comic book guy. I know that's that's more your lane, it's Michael. More my you line, love yeah. it. We talk about it all the time in the newsroom. <laughs> but um, no, I thought that this one it really. And maybe it's because I really like origin stories more, too. Maybe it's because it really took its time and developed a character arc. Maybe it was it got away from what we've seen a lot with a lot of the Avengers. When it's, you know, instead of a, another alien attack, we were it was a gritty sort of war film and they were in the trenches of World War One. Or maybe it's also just because Patty Jenkins, I thought the way she directed it, I felt like I was watching like those, especially the opening battle scene on the beach. It felt like I was watching moving panels of a comic book. It, the action was really easy to follow. It wasn't it wasn't sort of this shaky cam really overly CGI. It was she sort of used the slow motion to sort of ramp it down right before impact and then it would speed it back up and I thought the battles were really really well done and I thought that scene the scene where she enters no man's land when the you know Chris Pine says, you know, it, they're in the trenches in World War 1 and they say, you know, no man has been able to cross it and she says, yeah, but that's what I'm going to do and you know in the 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 XXL, they have the guitar plays, and she starts deflecting the bullets with her armbands, and you know, and especially in the year of, of the Harvey Weinstein stuff and Kevin Spacey and all the scandals. I think we're gonna look back, even folks that maybe didn't like Wonder Woman. I loved it. Even folks that yeah, I didn't, I think you're gonna look back and say, that was a game changer in Hollywood. Yeah, I think so too, for a lot of different reasons. I think the fact that it was a, uh, the first real female superhero. Excluding maybe Catwoman and and right. uh, Supergirl movies from before, Guy Gadot got. I mean, you can't you can't discount the fact that she she is yeah. so appealing in that character, yeah. and she sort of really embodied it. It was a movie that had something to say. I felt 
And the performances were, were good, not just hers, but also Chris Pine mm-hmm. a, as a supporting character. I mean, it just, you know, there were so many great things about it. And visually, it was stunning. It, it was it the most surprising superhero? Maybe not, but but it was certainly satisfying, I think. And so, yeah, you know, I, I would certainly put it on my top 10 list. So the top 10 grossingest picture that in the 10th place <laughs> is the fate of the furious oh yeah yeah so did you did you see that did you review I, that oh yeah we reviewed it i didn't like it as much as uh, i think fast five was still my favorite of that whole franchise just because of i think that's when the rock first came in <laughs> i thought they should have hung it up after furious seven they they did the paul walker send off after he died and he drove out to the the famous song see you again and i thought they should have left it there but you got to come back it's a money grab it's in the top 10 and those movies uh, gross the money not necessarily based on their merits at all. I think it's based on the built-in brand. People yeah. are going to see it regardless. Yeah, I think th- I think we're going to see that a lot in these top-grossing movies. But here. I will say that Wonder Woman is definitely was in the top ten. It's yeah, probably we'll, number we'll, two or three, we'll right? Get yeah. there. We'll get yeah. there. No, the um, the Fate and the Furious was uh, two hundred twenty-five thousand or thousand million million, million dollars. It's not, it's not not a small piece of change. Mm-hmm. It was okay. It was okay. But sticking sort of with these sort of event and and superhero movies, the number nine top grossing movie was actually Logan, mm-hmm. which is a different type of superhero movie. I think it was an mm-hmm. R-rated superhero movie. You know, it was taking a character that we'd sort of grown familiar with in, in through several X-Men sequels. And told a much more serious story. I like that a lot. And I would, in a different way, I'd almost put it very close to where, where Wonder Woman was in, in a, a movie if I were putting together a, a top 10 list. So you might have Logan cracking your top 10, interestingly. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of, it, it was definitely, and it's almost gotten forgotten probably because it came out so earlier in the year. I think Get Out's probably the only the one that came out that early that's still in, in the, the contention. But, it, you know, you got to see Hugh Jackman sign off for, in a role that we've all loved him. And it was very different from other superhero movies that we've seen. But yeah, I don't I, I see what you're saying, but I probably would give the edge to Wonder Woman just in terms of it was, you know, it's an origin story. It was fresh. It was, you know, it's Logan, we've we've seen that character many times right. before. And speaking speaking of like just superhero movies and, you know, how popular they are and, and how every studio seems to want to crank out their new their new franchise. I mean, if you look at Wonder Woman and what that did for like the sort of mainstream superhero movie. And then you need to compare it to what Logan did and what Deadpool did, mm-hmm. which were more adult-oriented. Deadpool um, was adult? No yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or even Suicide Squad, to a degree. We're more adult-oriented type of yeah. science fiction. I think, you know, maybe we're going to get beyond that, you know, all the big explosions and everything. Maybe we're starting to see superhero stories that, that people are demand a little bit more from, hopefully. I hope so. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. so. So what's your number nine? My number nine, I went with uh, Darkest Hour by Joe Wright. Uh, oh, that's ma- a great movie. He made atonement. I, I feel like I had to put it in here because I think Gary Oldman is a shoe-in to win Best Actor this year. He yeah, plays Winston so Churchill, obviously, in um, some pivotal months, right when he's newly appointed as the prime minister in 1940. So, you know, Hitler's on the move. Uh, Germany's, <laughs> ex- you know, invading many countries. And we get to sort of see, we get to see Winston Churchill staring down the, you know, the Neville Chamberlains of the world and um, saying, what's the line he says? You can't, when will you realize you can't reason with a tiger when your head 
head is in its mouth. And there's even that phone call where he makes with FDR. And, and oh my God, that's a that's a great moment. It's so it <laughs> makes as an American, I feel so bad. But it's it wouldn't. I think it was a Churchill line when he mm-hmm. says, you know, you can count on Americans to do the right thing only after they've exhausted every other option. But FDR in that scene is such the Humphrey Bogart, like you know, I'm not going to stick my neck out for anyone. Like it, we're entering the war very late after Pearl Harbor. But it really, uh, really allows you to appreciate Winston Churchill's. He was almost sort of the linchpin, the glue that was holding the Western world together before we got our act together and yeah. joined in the fight. And uh, his uh, Oldman's performance is pretty astounding. I remember sitting in and watching it and just like, you know, this is vicious. Yeah. You know, this is the same guy who did that. He's so lost in this character. I, I couldn't see him. I think with some of the as, best prosthetics yeah. I'd seen, like his face doesn't look like that at all. I mean, we've seen Sirius Black and Commissioner Gordon and, uh, you know, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, but he, it was physically transformative. Body movements, the slurring, the mumbling sort of words. He, yeah, it was, he, he became that person. Yeah. And I think you're going to be referencing another movie that this has a lot in common with is, yes. is Dunkirk. It's it's an interesting sort of history movie too. It's it's a slice of the history. It's not we're not going to tell the whole World War II mm-hmm. story. We're not going to tell the whole you know right. Winston Churchill story. We're going to tell the pivotal moment in his life, which happened to be the most pivotal moment in in the world. You know, tell it in this really succinct, very directed fashion. It's a great. It's a great movie. We're seeing that a lot, and I actually think it's a positive development rather than. Starting from birth and telling till death, you know, the full old old biopic treatment that we used to see a lot. You're seeing a lot of filmmakers now just taking a little slice, a little sliver of, of what was pivotal. We saw it with Ava DuVernay for, for Selma. We, it was a very thin slice of King's life, you know, in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Or um, in Lincoln, it was just him trying to pass yeah, the 13th Amendment. This is very much like Lincoln yep. in, in that way. Maybe, yeah. And I think it will do what it did for Daniel Day-Lewis. I think he will win the Oscar. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. So I'm going to jump to the number eight on my list. Oh, uh, on the box office on list. On the yeah. box office. The number eight top grossing movie of 2017, Despicable Me 3. Oh, wow. With $264 million. Okay. So did you see the that? The Minions. No, I, did, I missed I, that one. I missed this that is one. what, number four now, if you count Minions? Well, yeah, yeah, I think I it's four now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I kind of I kind of bailed on that. I train. don't think this was for us. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when you're, you know, I liked Coco much better. Okay, all right. Well, let's. Uh, what's your uh, What's your number eight? You alluded to it, Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan. I I wanted to put Darkest Hour and Dunkirk back to back. Until this movie, we. I mean, war historians know it, but it was still a semi-obscure event, but a very important event where the Germans had had pushed the Allied soldiers. I think it was a collection of British, French, and Belgium soldiers, yes. I believe, but stranded there along the water of the English Channel. And um, except for some some cloud cover above where the German planes couldn't see them, uh, the 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 civilian boats and vessels were able to come over and, and evacuate a lot back to London and and continue the war. Until this time, actually. Actually, the director of Darkest Hour, Joe Wright, had done probably the best Dunkirk sequence. He which did a single track atonement. in Atonement. Yeah. yeah, lots of cool tracking shots. In which Darkest is a Hour. weird, which is a like you know a weird moment if you're not familiar with. Right. Know, what are all these people standing on the beach for? I don't understand <laughs> yeah. what this is historically right. for, for Britain. Yeah, it's such a huge. Right. It's a huge thing. Right. Everyone knows D-Day, but not a, a lot of people know the Operation Dynamo of an evacuation because, you know, 
But uh, but I think we do now. I mean, Dunkirk was one of the the bigger blockbusters of the summer, and if you saw it in in IMAX, I mean, it was it was is totally a spectacle. Yeah. event. I saw it Air and Space. Yeah, um, I did too. I went I went the first uh, night to go see it with my son, and this was a movie that I had like specifically said, okay, I definitely want to see this movie mm-hmm. in the theater. I'm not going to wait for it to come on TV because it seemed like, especially since they were pushing the IMAX, that this would be something that would be really great on the big screen and it was i think it's one of those event mm. movies that you really need to see it it is a visceral experience it is it is <laughs> viscerally intense i mean on all your senses i mean uh the, i think it's Hans zimmer the score with the tick 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 I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah i'm getting anxiety just thinking about the ticking well, that's, just, that's that's a Hitchcock trope, right? Oh, totally, right. You, you put a you put a clock on it. Totally, you create suspense. Oh, totally. What I really thought was groundbreaking with this one was just how, in true Christopher Nolan form, just like Memento or Inception, he's always manipulating time and chronology, right? So we had the three intersecting and overlapping and doubling back on itself uh, storylines because I, I believe the the scene on the beach with Kenneth Branagh. Harry Styles, all those guys, I believe it takes place over a week. Then the stuff with Mark Rylance on the boats, I think, is over the course of a day. And then the dog fighting, you know, pilots with um, Tom Hardy, I would think, is an hour. So the fact that those three different um, chronologies exist, they have to double back over themselves. It's not like we're watching most movies as a, you know, a forward movie yeah. thing. And I got to say, for a lot of people I've talked with, it's kind of a polarizing movie for this regard. Because I saw of the time, it because of the time flow. Yeah, like they think it's confusing and. Well, um, it is. It is. And I, <laughs> I admit, no, it, honestly, I saw, and this is my where I, I show, uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, take take the, the curtain back on the critic thing. I saw it three times that first week just to, before I did what my review. What the hell's review going on? Because, I mean, visually stunning, obviously, and you, you knew you were watching something special, but just to make sure I caught all of the moments where the timelines intersected, yeah, I, m- I remember I went to see it three times just to make sure, which Honestly, I, you might have to dock slight points from the movie for that. I mean, uh, I, I give it credit for for uh, groundbreaking. You're, you're, but you're, you're criticizing the movie. You're 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 penalizing it for challenging you. Is no, that what it is? I admire I admire it for challenging me. Actually, um, but well, I think that's why it, it sort of drops. It, I got to say, it left me a little emotionally cold at the end. I was more. I guess I was more technically impressed with how it was put together and constructed. From it, was a a right, bit, it was a bit. Then like it a, was like a heartstring puller for me. It was a bit like a piece of clockwork. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, I don't think that there are any. The performances particularly stood out. I think they were all fine. None of them like, oh my god, that that one scene, it just my heart breaks. Because there aren't really many scenes for that. Yeah, yeah. It was very much a a sort of a a clockwork thing. This this is how it's going to. This is the way it's constructed. This is the way it's going to play together. Yeah, you don't get sort of the melodramatic stuff that a Spielberg would put in, like um, Private Ryan or something. I wonder if this because of. because Memento was a pretty powerful movie, but Lovely. and and even even Pulp Fiction, which is another one that that played with the sequence of scenes, that you felt cold just because you were so detached. It didn't follow the normal. That's what I, yeah, I would say maybe a detached storytelling arc. That comfort zone. Right. There wasn't sort of those normal uh, heroes character arcs. It was kind of uh, jumping around back and forth. Well, so you admire the construction and the direction of it. But I, I think that maybe that's why it kind of falls to like. Number eight, the bottom of my top ten is well, it didn't really hit me um, in the gut in a way that I right or in the yeah. heart I would say yeah I yeah I, off the top of my head I can't think of a a war movie that that I would I would necessarily say that although I know there are many let's talk about your number seven. Number seven was a movie that I saw out at the Middleburg Film Festival and the audience was howling. I Tanya by Craig Gillespie. Oh my god! Did you saw it? I saw it. Yeah, I yeah. saw it on a screener last week. 
I thought it was hysterical. I I guess I just didn't know. I didn't know what to expect going in. Um, I mean, obviously, I remember it vividly from my childhood, 1994 Winter Olympics, the whole kneecapping job on Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. But to me, the way that just the way that it was presented with all the director dress, you know, breaking the fourth wall, particularly Allison Janney, I think steals the show as her just vicious, not only strict, but just crass and cruel mother, chain smoking. And then even in the end, when you think it's going to be you know, a little bit of a redemption and she's got the tape recorder in the pocket. You're like, man, just the ultimate betrayal. <laughs> but, but just, I just found it laugh out loud, hilarious throughout. And, um, particularly the line, do you know the line I'm going to say the, the one that made us all lose it was about midway through two thirds of the way. Allison Janney pops back on screen and says, where the F was my, is my storyline, you know, and you're right around that time. You're thinking, yeah, she hadn't been on screen a lot. So we all lost it. But to me, I mean, yeah, I, I honestly think they did that. It, almost the impossible task of taking someone who is sort of a notorious pop culture villain through that and making her kind of sympathetic as yeah. sort of the blue collar, um, you know, trailer park person that was having to work harder. And just because she didn't have sort of the the blue blood um, princess ballerina figure skater. type. Yeah. And I liked that very much. I felt sympathetic for her through it. But it also there's a difference between being feel, feeling sympathetic and then being on her side. Right. Because this is a movie about very despicable people who have had very hard lives and do very despicable things. And really, at Pulled the end... off an attack. Let's not forget. we got to remember the context At the here. end of the day, that you know, you can sympathize with their situation. Mm. And certainly she was a victim of abuse and you sympathize, you sympathize with that. But you, you don't you're, like you're her necessarily. Her, you're not yeah. giving her a free pass. Right. But, you know, the, where my mind was at as I was getting towards the end of it, and, you know, especially after the Olympics and they had shown what she was as an athlete and some of the feats that she'd actually like the first accomplished. to do a triple axel right. and she was a legitimate act athlete who who smoked and drank mm-hmm. and did all this other stuff but she was a legitimate a- athlete and so i began thinking well this is really also a sports movie totally a sports and movie. so i was like well what is this like what is this like and so i've decided that this is the 21st century's raging bull Oh, I could totally see that. Except, except, way more lighthearted. Oh yeah, no, yeah. this is the comedy. But the similar the, tragic fall, yeah, yeah, the comedy, the I comedy mean, version of Raging Bull. That's yeah. an interesting way to put it. Yeah, yeah, well, the, Raging Bull is one of the all-time greats. Yeah, and we just lost Jake LaMotta in 2017 too. So if you see this as a as a comedy version of Jake, because there were <laughs> there were some kind of unintentionally funny things in right. in. Uh, in Raging Bull. Well, there's but some relief, but not much. Not much. Maybe it's some pretty, of the stuff with pretty, Pesci and, yeah. Pretty dire. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> But one but, of the all-time masterpieces But no, I'm, I'm thinking Bull. of um, Jake LaMotta and Tanya Harding at, at the end of both the same, they both sort of end up in the same place and they, through their lives, they've sort of ended up in the same place. Right. No, no that's Bad choices in- and things. No, that's an interesting comparison. I love it. What <laughs> I, I could, I, yeah, oh, I can still do the whole Raging Bull speech by heart if you want. I love that. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, those cheers. They still ring in my years and for years they remain in my thoughts because one day I came to the ring and what happened I forgot to wear shorts I recall every fall every hook every jab the worst way a guy can get rid of his flab as you know my life was a drab and though I'd rather hear you what cheer when I delve into Shakespeare a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse I've only what is it? I haven't had a winner in six months and though I'm no Olivier if he fought Sugar Ray he would say that the thing ain't the ring it's the play so give me a stage where this bull here can rage and though I can fight I'd much rather recite that's entertainment <laughs> I love Raging Bull. But anyway, <laughs> to, to that I say, where's my effing storyline? <laughs> but Margot Robbie, great. She was excellent. I I think she's going to have to be nominated for an Academy Award. I think she should. And I think 
They, Allison Janney definitely should be. Janney might win. I think Margot Robbie should be um, nominated. And But to me, it's the way they pulled it off was, I think, is taking that lighthearted approach and painting Jeff Galuli, her husband, and and the bodyguard who bodyguard thinks he's, oh, I was former NSA or whatever. <laughs> no, you weren't. Just painting them as those like bumbling idiots trying to pull this off. But I do think, and Christine Brennan had a great piece in USA Today, just it's a great movie, but let's let's remember the context in yeah. in our sort of hero worship. I don't know if this is a a person deserving of our redemption story, but as a movie, it's really well done. Yeah, let's leave it at that. <laughs> so the 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 number seven top grossing movie for 2017 was Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah, I like Thor Ragnarok. As did I. That was another movie I went to go, go see at the theater. 311 million. Yeah. Uh, not too shabby. No, for, that uh, was it. I'm, and you know what? I'm I'm glad to see that do well because I wasn't a big fan of Thor: The Dark World or even Avengers: Age of Ultron. But it might have been my favorite of of the just the Thor you know yeah. series. It was very anti anti the Thor formula, right? It, he yeah. lost his hammer. He cut his hair. It was a he little was like more comedic. Yeah, it was. And Jeff Goldblum was hilarious uh, off Jeff, on that planet. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum almost stole that movie. I yeah. think he might have actually totally. stolen that movie. So that that was the number seven. And the number sixth top grossing movie of 2017, which I'm sure is the top of your list, is It. Oh, yes. I really enjoyed it. Which was $327 million. Again, another movie. You know, I keep saying, there's a reason why I keep saying this is another movie I went to go see in the movies. It was because I tend to watch, wait to see a lot of the, the movies until they come out on digital. This I mean, is one you wanted to see in the theater. This is one I wanted to see in the theater. I'm not necessarily a huge Stephen King fan, but I recognize that this looked like a really interesting take on it. And I thought it was great. I wasn't scared by it particularly because clowns aren't my you know thing. Yeah. That doesn't scare me. Tax Paying taxes scares me. <laughs> so if there's, a, if there's a Stephen King uh, movie about, about the tax man, I, I'd be there scared. Terrified, <laughs> but but it, it it was pretty great. I was fine. You know, a lot of things in like, how dare you touch this classic horror movie? But that I was totally fine. A, it, it had never been a movie before. It was a two part TV miniseries, in and now it's going to be a two part movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually looking forward to the next one. But also, I went back and rewatched the Tim Curry one. And even though while he was really freaky as as Pennywise the clown. Some of the special effects, like him going down the storm drain and then battling the big ant creature thing at the end, are just so dated now. So I was t- I was totally fine with them redoing it, and I thought they did a nice a, a nice job with it. It had sort of that Stranger Things vibe, right? The yeah, camaraderie with the so. kids. Sophia Lillis, actually one of the kids from um, Stranger Things, is in it too. It kind of I thought it lost a little steam down the stretch. With it, sort of had sort of exponential jump scares with sort of diminishing returns. If in my book, but overall, I thought they did a nice job with it. Yeah, I did too. Okay, so what's your number six? Six is a movie you're not finding on many um, year-end best lists, but it was a, a movie that came out. It was a little mystery thriller that came out. I want to say around early October. Um, Wind River, starring Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen. It's uh, Taylor Sheridan who wrote Hell or High Water last year, and I believe he wrote Sicario for for Denis Villeneuve. I just think he's, this guy, I think, is sort of a modern commentator on what modern-day crime is. I mean, Hell or High Water was one of the best last year. And this year sort of had a similar sort of that Western, like, rugged, you know, vibe, survivalist skills, also welcome touches of comic relief as well like the in hell or high water the woman said so what don't you want 
either you don't want the green beans or you don't want the corn, but what don't you want? And in this, it had some some really funny moments too, but I thought Jeremy Renner was like a great silent strong type. He's sort of a, a game tracker who gets called in to investigate this murder mystery because he finds a, a woman uh, dead in the snow, a young girl. And uh, enlists Elizabeth Olsen's FBI agent, who's sort of the fish out of water. She's sort of the big city girl, and you know, doesn't you can't really hack it out in the snow. And then, but they work together to solve the case. And I enjoyed the pacing of it. I, I will admit, these you know, these murder mysteries are sort of my bag. I love them. I, I can't get enough of them. But it kind of built to this really abruptly shocking flurry of violence that like made me sit back in my seat. The end, sort of when he leaves the villain, you know, out to freeze, kind of reminded me almost of sort of like a good, the bad, the ugly kind of a thing, you know. Um, sort of the old Western punishment where he must fend for himself. and That and, and some of the, the Native American actors in the cast. I thought it was a social commentary about how uh, it's the Wind, Wind River Indian Reservation is where this all happens and kind of showed sort of poverty, the loneliness of being out there in the cold, sort of the drug abuse out there. And yeah, I thought it was a poignant, poignant little movie. And he, he and the the father of of the girl kind of sit and have that bonding moment at the end. It touched me as well as thrilled me. I liked it a lot. I, I saw that it was in your list, and so I made it a point to check it out. And at first, I thought, oh, this is going to be because it was on your list. I thought, oh, this is going to be like No Country for Old for Old Men. It had mm-hmm. kind of that feel. Mm-hmm. But then it didn't. And then I was like, well, is is Jeremy Renner sort of a like a Clint Eastwood type character? Right. And this is not really. So when when Elizabeth Olsen came in, I thought. I had sort of expectations, uh, you know, that you bring in a, a female uh, fish out of water character into something like this. That the, the plot's going to go a particular way, but it didn't. Right. And it, it was kind of subverted your expectations. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. Exactly right. It's a fine thriller. I don't necessarily had put it on my own personal mm. top ten list, but I was glad I watched it. Yeah. I, I dug sort of the atmospherics of it. Um, the, the one scene I would kind of do without is I think there's like a flashback sequence to the actual crime. I think that lasts a little little long and. Well, that, might not need to see it all. And it that, helps answer some questions, but it's a little, a little grotesque. Yeah, and I think also from a storytelling standpoint, it was it's presented v- very abruptly, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, here's all this stuff that happened. This is going to explain what's here's gonna, what you missed. Here's yeah. what this is going to explain what's going to happen next. Yeah, and it's like here's this sudden new character, yeah. new situation, all this thing unfolds, and then you begin. It's a different way of telling a story. I didn't necessarily think it was bad. I think yeah. it was unusual. Yeah, I know I'm sort of in the minority and in including it in the top 10, but I wanted to give it some love because no one else really was. It was kind of a forgotten thriller from the fall. So Yeah, that's like the, um, you, you put like a little a different type of spice or right. a different like aged like, cheese was that something movie to a give couple it a slightly years, different flavor. The guy that made Arrival, Denis Villeneuve. Um, Prisoners. Like, I feel like I really like that too and I feel like that kind of got overlooked. I feel like these thrillers and mysteries uh, kind of always get they don't. Ne- they never get their due. So I like to hold them up. So we're gonna go into the our top five in a moment. Can you talk about maybe some of the also rans, the ones that didn't make your top? 10 oh list? yeah, some of the more honorable mentions. Yes. Um, yes. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Have you seen that yet? Yes, I, yes, I did. I would call it wickedly funny. It's kind of that really dark humor. I mean, the subject matter is you know she's got to France McDormand's got to take out these billboards to prod the cops to find you know the the perpetrator that raped and killed her daughter. So I mean, how do, how do they make a comedy out of that? I don't know. It does on paper. It it sounds what that's the genre, but they he totally does. Martin McDonough. I found several moments really side-splitting. And to me, the line of the movie was Peter Dinklage getting up to go to the bat you know, from Game of Thrones. He, he, they're at dinner, and he says, I have to go use the little boys' room. <laughs> it takes a second to register. But there's many moments like that, and even some of the language where you're like, 
they're, are they really going there? Oh, yep, they're going there, all right. So, I don't know. It, it kind of fell out of my top ten. It was kind of high on my list, but then it, it just, the more I think about it, it kind of dropped off a little bit just because there's some mean-spirited stuff to it. But Woody Harrelson was great. Sam Rockwell was great. Francis, Francis McDormand, McDormand was, carried it. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's more of an honorable mention territory. Yeah, than I, and I agree with you. It's an honorable mention. It's a well-made movie. I did not... I didn't love the movie. I didn't find it really particularly funny. Certainly not as funny as you. Uh, <laughs> Francis McDormick was great. You know, Sam Rockwell was great. But it's tough sometimes, even especially with a comedy, when if they if you don't have anybody you particularly sympathize with. Yeah. On paper, you're supposed to sympathize, I guess, with right. Francis McDormick's character, and and I didn't. The character I did sympathize with, uh, Woody Harrelson, isn't around for long. Right. So didn't see that coming. By no, the way. I didn't. Neither did I. So. I came over with sort of mixed feelings about it. it it's sort it was, of a tonally confused movie, a yeah, little exactly bit. Exactly right. I think bit. the tone is 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 wrong. Yeah. Well, for, I, for I don't it, I don't think it's I don't yeah I wouldn't say it's necessarily but, confused. I think it was intentional. I think he's going for sort of like kind of that toe of the line Fargo kind of you know make you yeah. laugh and then make you cringe kind of a thing. It works mostly, but again, honorable mention. Honorable, was that, what else? Do you have <laughs> um, Coco. I mentioned that earlier. I thought Pixar did it again. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that yet, but everybody I've talked to said that's great. It hits all the right and notes. Sad. Yeah, well, it hits all the right notes, and it's man, I it plucks the heartstrings, and, and there's a song where they, it's called "Remember Me," and I'm telling you, I promise, after you see <sighs> it, you. It, they were misty-eyed. Uh, parents and kids yeah. alike were bawling in, in the theater. Baby Driver I liked a lot. If we want to go for an action movie from earlier in the year, I thought Edgar Wright, who, you know, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, in terms of maybe the most kinetic, stylized movie of the year, every car door slamming, every gun blast was synced perfectly with, you know, the the, the beats of the soundtrack. And I think I think it was John Waters, you know, the director. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Who's he put, said it was his favorite movie of the year? He said that watching Ansel Elgort in here, he's the lead lead actor, you know, with the jamming around to his eye buds, the your earbuds. John Waters said that watching Ansel Elgort in this reminded him of the first time seeing John Travolta strut down the street in in uh, Saturday Night Fever, kind of that flashy vibe. Points off for Kevin Spacey in it, I guess, right? But you get John. John. We're just gonna just just subtract him from everything from now on. But Lily James was great chemistry with Ansel in uh, in the diner as the waitress. Um, you get Jamie Foxx and John Hamm, and I thought I thought it was well done. There were things I liked in this movie, and certainly all of the music stuff, synchronicity of it was really great. Didn't particularly find the story particularly engaging, so I kind of came away with it with yeah. I thought the final act was tacked on to with him going to jail. Yeah. And, 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 you oh, know, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of, because yeah. I was kind of on the fence. Oh, this is kind yeah. of neat. And again, this goes back to the Dunkirk thing. Mm-hmm. Is the the beautiful thing you create, is is it a detriment or is it a... Right. After a while, I felt it was very indulgent and annoying. Yeah, I think it got indulgent, which is probably why it dropped into honorable mention territory for me. Um, what else? Shape of Water. Guillermo del Toro's latest. Have you seen it yet? Yes, I have. Everything <laughs> Bizarre, that's on your honorable list, I probably don't love as much as you it's do. It's your dishonorable list. <laughs> well, that, no, this this movie, like, I think it's been making a lot of people's end-of-the-year best list, but for me, it kind of fell out into the honorable mentions because, I don't know, I, I didn't quite, you know, rave over it like everybody else. I thought it was well done and def- certainly interesting. Kind of like you and know gi- splash or <laughs> yeah well, no it's exactly right it's like it's like a it's a sort of Guillermo Guillermo del Toro's splash mm-hmm. and it's visually interesting mm-hmm. there's some some wonderful yeah. actors in it and, and some Hawking, great sequences yeah. and the design is excellent the special effects are amazing the the fish man for lack of a better word yeah. is an incredible effect I just didn't find it particularly 
special or, or interesting or, or entertaining. I, I mean, I, I love his movies, and I was really looking forward to this, so I was a little disappointed. Yeah, Pan's away. Labyrinth, I think, blows this yeah. out of the <laughs> out of the water, pun intended. But yeah, I, I think it's leading the way. We're going into the Golden Globe Sunday. I think it picked up the most nominations of anything, which is kind of surprising to me. I while a fine movie, I still I still sort of have it in my you know fifteen top 15 20 range rather than in my top 10. Okay. Anything else? Uh I like the disaster artist. Did you see it? <laughs> yes, but that's I just cuz I the room that, that my probably... buddies and I have a thing about where we all watch the room and yeah and we make fun of it. I, it, it was like an Ed Wood kind of a movie, you know. Yeah. The Room is a movie I've known about, I've never actually watched, but I thought it was great. I, he was um uh, James Franco was excellent. His brother was excellent. It was you know, yeah, it's an, it's yeah. an Ed Wood movie. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Does I enjoyed it. Movie. I probably would have put it somewhere on my top, my own personal top ten list. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Disaster Artist does for The Room what Ed Wood did for Plan 9 from Outer Space. It takes these uh, disastrous, hor- horrendous, you know, famously, infamously badly made movies and creates a compelling behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, you know, Tommy yeah. Wiseau, I still don't know where he got his money from or where the accent comes from. He's a mysterious enigma, but it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> oh, hi, oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello, um, doggy. What else? Florida Project um, oh was really good. That would have been on my top that final That final sprint into the Magic Kingdom, I, oh I was, gosh. like, really touched at that point. Detroit, Catherine Bigelow. What else was, was from this year that was pretty good? That's- I like Molly's Game. I haven't seen. I it even yet. like Planet of the Apes. Call me by your name. There's a lot. You, there's a lot you could say for the honorable mentions. Okay. Well, let's jump then into the top five. What's your uh, top five? Uh, Number five was a movie that made me laugh really, really hard. The Big Sick by Michael Showalter. It sort of caught me by surprise how much I enjoyed this one. I kind of went in with zero. I, I didn't really know anything about it. Just went to the critic screening. and It's the closest comparison, I'll say, to when I watched Captain Fantastic last year. And I just, every scene that went on, I smiled even more, laughed even more. And by the end, I was like, I love this movie. Again, I went and saw The Big Sick three times. But unlike Dunkirk, it was less to understand it, but more just to, oh, you got to come with me and see this. I loved it. Zoe Kazan is adorable chemistry with Kamel Nanjiani here as the, I guess, sort of an unlikely couple in there. But it's a true story. The right. writer, Kamel Nanjiani, wrote it with his, his real-life wife now. So you know she's going to live through the coma if you know their real-life story. But, you know, the granddaughter, right, of Elia Kazan, who did On the Waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire. And I thought their chemistry was great. I thought the parents made, of on both sides made yeah. the movie. Her parents, both sort of at the dinner table with sort of the Pakistani-American, you know... uh, The brides. Yeah, yeah. Potential brides, they were sort of... Yeah, exactly. Like the, uh, oh, look who just dropped in. They just popped in. (laughs) Trying to set set her son up. But then also, and the dad's a a really famous Bollywood actor. Yeah. To me, it was her parents that made it. Ray Romano and and Holly Hunter, who man, I that hope she a great, gets. That was a great performance. I would totally, I would totally be fine if she won supporting actress this year. Um, she she's hilarious as always, and with that sort of her native southern accent, it just it made it. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed that a, a lot. It's it's a really solid comedy, and it's not a. You know, hangover. There's there's right. hijinks and and laughs every second. It's it's a character comedy. The the humor, the enjoyment that you get out of it is just you sympathize with these people. You 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 love their story. You want to see everything come out all right, and it just takes you on that journey. You don't see. Sadly, we don't we don't see a lot of movies mm-hmm. like this. It's is it not even. I guess you could, in, in very broad terms, call it a rom com. I call it a romantic comedy. Yeah. But to me, I, my line was that it, it, it the romantic comedy is sort of you know. 
It's very hit or miss these days. Right. And but I thought my line was that this this one came and just yanked the rom com right out of right. the coma. Like I think it revived the genre in a way that I like to see. Like in, when done well, when Harry met Sally, stuff like that. It's it's fantastic. But so many of them are, I guess, lowest common denominator or very sort of cliched stuff we've seen before. This one, this one felt fresh. You believed, you know, that these that these people were in love, and the you know you got to see the parents bond with them, and and I will say some laugh out loud lines when they're when he's quizzing when Ray Romano's in the cafeteria, of the hotel yeah. quizzing him about or not the hotel, the hospital quizzing him about nine eleven, and it's really awkward, <laughs> and he breaks it. Kamel says, "Yeah, we lost nine of our best guys that day." I mean, the the audience howled. So, to me, it hit all the right notes. Yeah, I agree. The number five top grossing movie of 2017, Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, I also like, similar to Thor Ragnarok, I like that one. $334 million. I like that, too. I saw it on video, and the Spider-Man movies have been really kind of a hit, hit and miss, and it seemed like every Well, they've every redone year them they, so many times. They, they like, brought yeah. it. Here's another origin of yeah. Spider-Man. I think I've seen that two or three times before. Yeah. And so I kind of avoided seeing this in the movie theater, and when it eventually came out on, on video, I eventually watched it. I even watched it the first week or anything, and I was pleasantly surprised. Do you know the lead actor's name? Tom know. Holland. He was really good. Very I good. liked him a lot. Well, he I, debuted in Civil War, right? Marvel Civil War. He had yeah. A brief yeah. Intro- introduction. Yeah, and I think it was a very smart, and obviously there were things that had to go on behind the scenes in order for Spider-Man to be part mm. of yeah. the, the Marvel Cinematic mm. Universe. But, you know, including Iron Man in there, Tony Stark, yeah. I mean, that was brilliant. Michael um, Keaton, man. As, Michael Keaton, my as gosh. As the villain Vulture. Who, he was great. That's sort of a meta wink to Birdman, I guess, to have a wink. Well, which was a wink to Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he's, he's sort of gone full circle. And, yeah. th- and then it's not just bad enough that he is the villain right. of the movie. And the he's twist. Telling us, oh, the twist is was so great. he's the father and no of one, the... no one's seeing that coming. Well, yeah, he shows <laughs> up and, and then you realize, he's oh, just... that's why it's called Spider-Man Homecoming. Because it's about the homecoming dance. Because let's face it, this is almost like a, a John use teen comedy yeah. just as much as it is a superhero movie, yeah. which I loved. I thought that was refreshing. No, But that twist is what made it for me. That's yeah. when it went from like, this was an enjoyable summer blockbuster to, oh, all right, this thing, all right, Come you on, got me. Was, you got me. And he was too, yeah, it was, that was great. So the number four top grossing film of the year was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 at $389 million. I like this. I didn't like it as much as the first movie. I thought it had sort of fallen a step. It was fine. Yeah, it was also very enjoyable. It's one of those where I I enjoyed it and was entertained coming out of it, but here sitting at the end of the year, or I guess it's January now, I'm having a hard time remembering pieces of it. You know, I, the first one I remember more. You had Baby Groot stealing the show, dancing to the you know in the opening credits, and down the end, I think when they're trying to detonate the bomb. Um, there's some lines where, where Baby Groot is, is handing over, what, duct tape? Yeah, okay, it's yeah. coming back to me a little bit. Um, it was entertaining, I'm with you, but almost a little bit of that on-the-nose soundtracking kind of a, yeah. a deal, Mickey Mousing. Yeah, you you compare it to something, you, know, you compare it to Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is a much, I mean, me- much more memorable movie. This yeah. was just obviously a sequel of a movie that kind of surprised a, a lot of people. Yeah. I think it was fine. It was a it was a good sequel. What about? And again, like like I'm saying with a lot of these top ten grocers, um, I honestly don't think the they are making the top ten in their on their own merits. It's based on people like the first one. Yeah, that's why it grossed top five. Okay, well, sorry, (laughs) that's why. Okay, that's why Spider Man's in there. That's why Thor's in there. That's why Fast and the Furious was a sequel. Well, there's a couple exceptions. That might be one of my maybe my favorite movie ever. But anyway, oh, we're gonna get into that discussion. (laughs) Um, So, what was your what was your number four? 
Number four was a movie that just came out. Actually, it's not even out nationwide yet. Uh, the Post. Steven Spielberg. Saw that last night. Oh, I'm so glad that it's fresh in your mind. Um, yeah. I've seen it twice now, and um, it's perfect for this podcast, right? It's yeah. all journalism. Yeah, this is yeah, this is the journalism hookup. Yeah, this is this is legacy. They even say the word legacy yeah. in it, but they mean it in a completely different way, in a very you know yeah. grand way. Whereas we talk about legacy journalism, right. and it's like ah, legacy journalism, right, blah right. blah blah. But it, your take? Um, I thought it was a very. I mean, the expectations going into this when you first when you heard that Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep were gonna have their first movie together. Hard to believe they haven't done one. And then you heard it was Spielberg directing them, and it was co-written by the guy that wrote Spotlight. And you know, John Williams was doing the score. Love All of it. You're, you're like, oh my gosh. I will, and I will say, I thought it lived up to it for me. There's a couple of those little moments that maybe you could say are, are sort of the the Spielbergian, you know, melodramatic. But I don't care. I mean, I, the story to me was. Entertaining, you know, with newspaper movies, you never know. If it could, for many audience members, it could be dry, but for this, it's not. It's fast moving, it's entertaining. And to me, why I think it's a great movie is. Is sort of the the timely importance of it. They when they set out to make it, I think, at least when Spielberg and Hanks and Streep and Odenkirk and Bradley Whitford came down and did a Q and A at the Post. Can I just say you just mentioned all those actors? Yeah. This is the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls oh, of yeah. a movie. Oh yeah, like oh it's got these two stars in yeah. it. No no no. Everybody, everybody. The, everybody in this movie is great. A bunch of TV, like Carrie Coon is in it too yeah. from Fargo and um, The Leftovers. Anyway, I don't No, no. It's, the guy from The Americans is in it. Yeah. Does he play Daniel Ellsberg maybe? Yeah, no, yeah. you go down two or three everybody. levels on this and there's a really strong actor in yeah. it. It's and, fantastic. Oh, it's, Sarah Paulson is Ben Bradley's wife. And so, yeah, um, it's uh, Alison Brie is, everybody, yeah. is uh, Martha Graham's yeah. daughter. Yeah. I mean, if Spielberg calls you and says we're doing, you want to be in with Streep and Hanks, there, yeah. Well, this sign is almost old style Hollywood. You know, we're we're going to take all of these yeah. pieces that you like and we're going to put them together yeah. in this this high, yeah. um, uh, you know, high profile project. Yeah. With a big director, so it's in that way, it's kind of almost a throwback. And just the way, and this is Spielberg's sensibility too, but it's just the way the story is told. It's it's like a great traditionally made classic entertaining drama um, with some some timely themes. I mean, it's watching. I mean, we've definitely seen in in recent months a little hostility towards the news business, fake news, things like that out of the White House. What? Um, and Spielberg was saying when he came and did this Q and A a couple of weeks ago at the Post was saying that that's sort of what spurred them to to rush this movie out to, to you know to shoot it they shot it really fast and got it together was because they thought it would be sort of you know a, a first amendment movie you know sort of a trump era movie and then during the post production process the Weinstein stuff broke and they realized oh wow we we also have this movie now it's more about Meryl Streep is Catherine Graham, you know, being um, the sole woman. I mean, she's the publisher of this, but the sole woman in a room full of old white dudes a lot of the time. And that should be jarring to us when we see that on screen or, you know, there's there's not many people of color in it either. It's to me, it should be jarring. But that's how it was at the time. So it's in, I think the movie touches on. I mean, oh, we should say it's about the Pentagon Papers, right? We yeah. haven't even said. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of things going right. on in this movie. It's a prequel to Watergate. Yeah. Really? I mean, literally, the movie ends in it's, the scene where it, you it know, has where, a Rogue One ending. Yeah. Uh, to, <laughs> yeah. To, to uh, all the president's it men. Totally passes off to all the president's <laughs> men. Um but yeah, even the way Spielberg filmed some of it, like when Bob Go Odenkirk's at the payphone and his reflections in there, that was a cool little shot. Or um, there's like a lot of shots sort of making them almost Citizen Kane-like, like um, larger-than-life figures or looking down over their shoulders, down at, at someone looking small um, while they're while they're in distress. I thought, I thought it was just a well-crafted movie on an important topic 
which you and I, I mean, it's catnip for us, right? Yeah, we're, no, we're journalists, I, but I, I, I had mixed feelings going in. It was like, oh, well, it's going to be, you know, everybody's going to talk about the post and how great, you know, the right. Pentagon Papers, blah, blah, blah. But it was just a really well-made movie. It's an incredibly entertaining movie. This is a movie that people applauded at during the movie mm-hmm. and when there's a big like decision moment occurs and then people applaud at the end of the movie. There were just a couple of movies. Wonder Woman is one of them. Dunkirk was the other where people applauded uh, when the movie was over. I really liked it. I did too. And um, yeah, that's all I got. Okay. That's all we got to say. (laughs) So the number three top grossing movie of the year, Wonder Woman, $412 million. Mm -hmm. I think that's not, not a big surprise. It's a surprise for DC Comics, who've been struggling yeah. to get a, a movie in here. I know Justice League just is out of the uh, top 10. Uh, that was at $225 million in the 11th spot. Speaking of which, I have a bone which, to pick with DC, the okay. DC Cinematic Universe. Uh, Ready? I've raved about Wonder Woman. It's in, I put it in my top 10. As you saw, it was it's number four grossing of the year, right? Yeah, number, <laughs> number three. Number three grossing of the year. That's not too shabby. Which I love that. I love the fact that that's they where got, it is. They got rewarded. I, they sh- And they should have been. I like to a, see when a well-made movie is rewarded. My Here's my bone to pick. We've seen her, the character Wonder Woman, from if you count Batman vs. Superman and Wonder Woman. Three movies. And Justice League. Three movies in the last year and a half? Two year-ish? Three, year and a half? Yeah. Why? I, let me miss her a little bit. Like, and I, I don't understand why why they need to be They're still playing catch rushed up. out. Yeah, but to me, just, and we don't have to go on a Justice League diatribe. <laughs> I think they should have they should have given Flash his own movie. They should have given Aquaman his own movie. They gave Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman a movie. Give Ben Ben Affleck's Batman his own movie and then do the big team up like Avengers. Like I, I that seems like a missed opportunity to me to cram, I think cram they, them all in. They wanted to try to jump. Yeah. You know, jump forward as much as they could so yeah. they could they could have, now they can yeah. now they'll have the Flash movie, now they'll have uh, yeah. Aquaman and all the other ones. I think would have paid more dividends if they did it the other way. Well, but you know, it's the, <laughs> <laughs> that that's them. What about? Did you t- say your number three? I lost track. Um, no, I did four, which was the post. My number three was Lady Bird. Have you seen Lady it's a Bird? Great movie. Greta Gerwig. Excellent. Uh, her solo directorial debut. She spent she spent many of the last couple years writing and acting um, in uh, collaborating with um, Noah Baumbach in movies like Mistress Mistress America and Francis Ha, but. I love to see her step out here and actually have her directorial debut. I actually sat down with her for like a nice lengthy one-on-one out at Middleburg, and we went through so much of the movie and so many of the social themes from the you know the religion to the economics to the her a uh, young girl you know sexual awakening all, all of all of the social elements. But to me, what made this movie so great was. I mean, A, Saoirse Ronan is fantastic. Laurie Metcalf is fantastic as her mother. It's like a love-hate relationship between the mother-daughter that anyone can relate to with you and your parents. For me, what made it was, I think it was, we've seen the coming-of-age movies, of, you know, John Hughes in the 80s and things like that, but to me, this is the first one that really captured, well, sort of my life experience. I have a great relationship with my parents, but in general, the millennial experience, the yes. without talking down to millennials, you know, it was they have this is their unique life experience, and this is what they went through from the bone thugs playing in the school dance to Dave Matthews and all that. I mean, it's to me, it was just nostalgic as hell, but they nailed it. Well, and I heard her interviewed, and and one of the things that she talked about was when she, where she placed that in. In, in years, she made it. She placed yeah. it so that before cell phones had yeah. really kind of 2002. taken off. It's post so, 9/11 because she did post 9/11 before cell phones. Yeah. Sort Iraq of, wars on the TV. Exactly, and you know, 
that way, I think I think she did that because she felt people would be more relatable yeah. and, and it could tell a much more interesting story. Laurie Metcalf, I think, should win an Academy Award for this performance. And she's, she might. She's a favorite. She's uh, you know, she's a pretty astounding actor who's been in so many great things. I mean, From Roseanne. Roseanne. Roseanne, of course, but. You know, you, mm-hmm. she pops up in these things and gives these these mm-hmm. incredible performances, and then just moves on to something else. It's, you know, I'm I'm really rooting for her. I love this movie. Um, loved it. I uh, loved it. It it you, it starts off. You think it's just sort of like a delightful coming of age thing, maybe you've seen before, and then with each compounding scene, it builds and builds and builds, and by the end, you know you're watching something special when she walks out of that church and calls her parents and, and says, she leaves a, v- a message and says, I love you, and then I think it cuts to black right as she exhales for the first time, I think, and I was welling up. I had a lump in my throat. I was like, what? what does he say in Seinfeld? He's like, what is this salty discharge coming out of my eyes? I care. Uh, no, it really hit me. It hit me. I was getting all the feels. Yeah, no, this is one of my, this is one of my favorites. Uh, top Certainly in the top three of my own personal movies of the year. It was just it's just so well well done. So what what's your number two? Movie? My number two is Get Out. Number two. Yes, is that your number one? It might be my number okay. one. It might be number. I've I've gone back and forth many times. To me, it is easily. And I remember I wa- I went and saw this right. I, I was out in L.A. covering the Oscars. It had just ended. Oh, just, yeah, just drop that in there. <laughs> but the point being is, I kind of staggered into this. You know. What was being billed is like a horror comedy from Jordan Peele. We, you know, no one knew anything about it, and usually that's when the really stinkers come out, right in February, right? You know, in the post-Oscar doldrums. I walked in there, and I'm sitting there watching a masterpiece unfold that usually is not released that time of year, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Oh my God!" Like he's picking cotton to get out. Yeah. He's their shirts, and I notice this stuff all the time because, but it is a thrilling movie in the f- surface level. But you're seeing. The deer antlers. There's so much depth in the, this movie. Um, yeah, I mean, or um, there's moments where his blue shirt and her red and white striped shirt look like the American flag. He's Jordan Peele. It might be the best directed movie of the year, like symbolic yeah. level, and um, not to mention all the social commentary. It's you know, it's it's basically a guess who's coming to dinner meets Stepford Wives with a little. I was getting Rosemary's Baby yeah. vibes too, but to me, if anyone. Wants to write, and it's nominated in the comedy category at the Globes. It's always weird every year like that. There are satirical elements, but here's what I'll say. If anyone wants to write this off as just a genre experiment, as a horror comedy, you're making, you are going to be on the wrong side of history on this one. It is cinematically great, and just as, let's say, Rosemary's Baby is right up there with like 2001 A Space Odyssey as like the two best movies of 1968, I think we are going to look back at this as one of the one or two of this year in terms of pop culture references. We're going to look back at the hypnosis scene and the sunken place. All the, these will be touchstones we'll talk about from years to come. I like to think of it as something like um, like Silence of the Lambs, which is a, which is like a it's really just a sophisticated slasher movie. Yeah. But it you know won an Academy Award. Right. It was some people recognized it, that it was something. <laughs> yeah, people recognized that it was something more than that. Yeah. And I'm hoping. I mean, when you know the, this may be one of those movies because when it came out, it, that may work against it as far as like Oscars mm-hmm. go. Because people were t- giving an Oscar buzz yeah. in February and March. Well, Lambs came out in February too, but that was a different time. And Movies they were like, they were like, uh, "This is, you know, if anything else good comes, I don't know yeah. if it's going to be, be be able to beat this." This movie can be viewed on so many levels. It could, mm-hmm. it, it's just a, it could be a popcorn movie. Mm-hmm. It could be a, a thought piece. It's yeah. just so so well acted, so well directed. You know, it's and it's 
it's just beautiful to look at too. Yeah. So yeah. and they're driving in a Lincoln in the yeah. Come on, literally, uh, he the car he chose it. I'm not joking you. I guarantee he thought through all this. Well, stuff. and also but the performances too. Catherine Keener, you know, yeah. stirring the cup. Oh, Bradley Whitford again yeah. doing sort of the hand signals in the gazebo, auctioning him off. Allison Williams, Brian Williams' daughter, as the the girlfriend with a, a little twist up her sleeve, and then well, eating the Fruit Loops, well, and then Daniel Kaluuya. Those tears. He was crying on command. Yeah, and because we're in Federal News Radio Studios recording this, I should point out that it was a federal employee who, uh-huh. who saved them at the end. TSA. So, TSA agency. <laughs> people are worried about. Which that know. end, I got to say, when those police lights came up on the crime scene, you thought, you know, we were all thinking, oh, great, it's going to be thing. like a, you know, whatever, it's Trayvon Martin, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we thought it was going to be the, the tragic ending and then we get the we get the comic relief so i'm gonna had it both ways actually i'm gonna um do the next the the top two grossing movies just so we can get through that so we can end on on your top movie the number two movie another movie i I did not see but you might have seen beauty and the beast yes 504 million dollars which is is a heck of a lot of money I would say the majority of movies in the top 10 are from Walt Disney. Walt Disney had a really good year this year. Mm. Uh, did you well, see they the, own everything now. They just bought. That's true. <laughs> didn't they don't, don't they movies. also own some of 20th Century Fox now? Yeah. So how about, so how about did you Beauty see Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, yeah, I like Beauty and the Beast. Um, <laughs> 500 million worth. <laughs> well, it was, no, it was number one for the whole year until Star Wars just edged it out. It was uh, a oh, worthy. Way to spoil the top yeah, grossing sorry. movie. It was a worthy remake. I will say I I could not stand Emma Watson's auto-tune voice. It was very it was clearly digital digitally enhanced compared to let's say Dan Stevens as the Beast who slayed it. I thought he had some great songs. What is he saying? Evermore, I think it was the song name. But yeah, that was the part that annoyed me, but you know, we had uh Ewan, Mc, Ewan McGregor as Lumiere, um Emma Thompson as Mrs. Potts was um Ian, was it Ian McKellen as Cogsworth? I, sure. I can't remember. I didn't see it. Um, oh, Josh Gad did a little um, social progress as LeFou crushing on Gaston, who is, you know, and Gaston is, you know, suitably cocky and arrogant in this one. So, fine. It was one of those costume sort of pieces where you're like, all right, that was nicely done with, uh, you know, la- the lavish visuals. But to me, it should not rank anywhere near anyone's top uh, the list simply because it, it rides the coattails of the animated masterpiece. Right. It did what it did. Yeah. The Which that might be the greatest movie, you know, animated yeah, movie music musical. Lion King. Lion but, King too. But okay. in terms of like the sh- in terms of like a show tunes, yeah. it's Beauty yeah, and the yeah. Beast. Um, and the number one top grossing of the movie of the year, which you spoiled, ah, uh, was ah. Star Wars Episode Eight: The, the Last, Last Jedi. Jedi. I saw that as well. Five hundred and seventeen million. It did that business since. Uh, like in 16 days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah, no, that's, it's, it hasn't even been out a month yet, I don't no, think so. No, So what was your what were your thoughts of that movie? I like The Last Jedi. I like The Force Awakens better. I might, Maybe I'm a little in the, in the minority. I wasn't blown one. away with Force Awakens, but I think I probably liked that a little bit better than this one. I had problems with this movie. I did too. Um, again, I, I liked it. It was enjoyable to watch in a theater with everybody. I thought it, it ran a little long, and not not just because it was two and a half hours. I, when I say length, I don't mean runtime at all, because there's been great movies that went three hours, The Godfather, four hours, Lawrence of Arabia. Goodfellas is is a fast moving two and a half hours. It's to me, I think it's less runtime than it is sort of just how it's paced. If every scene is building towards something, and here I think there was there was a lot of stuff, a lot of actually good stuff at the end that still had to happen that we could have got to quicker if they. I think they could have pulled 
a chunk out of the middle when they visit that planet with the horse track and the casino yeah. and Benicio del they Toro. They could have probably almost have thrown that whole thing out. You and could then, have plucked it out. I mean, was, yeah, he helped with the what? He was like the help he, get he the path. He opened the door yeah. or whatever. But other than yeah, I mean, they could have yeah. easily written that out. I would have chopped that out, and I think it would have moved a lot longer. But also, in addition to that sort of sluggishness, where I was kind of looking around thinking, man, I'm been in the theater a while. I'm glad I didn't get the big soda. <laughs> um, <laughs> stick with the popcorn. To me, to me, it was, there were some unanswered questions, too. They were building it up like they were going to do a big reveal of, of um, Daisy Ridley uh, Ray, of her, of her parents, um, or at least her sibling, which I think still could come. I don't believe Kylo Ren saying, you know, I think, I think they're going to end up siblings probably, right? Who knows? But, um, who cares? They yeah they they, <laughs> they made it seem like Luke Skywalker. It was great seeing Mark Hamill back and Carrie Fisher. I thought they missed a I thought opportunity to to kill her off. I mean she's dead. Why? I, you thought yeah, that they could have had her had her bow out like Harrison Ford. But Luke Skywalker, they they build it up like he he says I'm going to teach you three lessons to to Ray right, and the, he gives one about the Force, he gives another, and then I don't even they never really say what the yeah. third one was. I don't know, fellow anticlimactic, little, little little sloppy yeah. all around. So you know, it was fine with the exception of um, let me look down this real quick. Wonder Woman, actually Wonder Woman, with the exception of Wonder Woman, all of those top grossing movies were ones that were not on your list. Mm. Well, but they're was all. Get out, or is that more? Did that drop to like eleven or twelve? Get Out was 15. Mm, okay. So, it was in the uh, top 10 for most of the year. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, But it wasn't at the end, so yeah, that's where it's important. Um, <laughs> you know, these are also blockbuster films. Uh, things one, You know, let's, before you get, let's, let's, let's tease this out just a, a little bit. Before I want to talk about, one. talk about one thing. One of the things I was saying through this was, yeah, I went, I made a point to go to the movie to see this. Um, and this was really kind of the first year I'm, I'm a big movie fan and it really was kind of the first year I sat in a movie theater in a giant recliner that was better than any seat in my house. And I'm thinking, what are they doing here? They're trying to recreate the home experience in the theater. And I began to think, well, what does that mean for, for movies? Because I can see there are all these wonderful television programs going on. I mean, Twin Peaks, episode eight of Twin Peaks may have been the best single episode of a television show in the history of television. And it was done by a movie director mm -hmm. who was doing a TV series on TV. Right. And there are people who, and you had things like Netflix that are coming out and rolling out films. For a lot of the great stuff. Is a lot of great stuff. So, I mean, are we in the twilight years of, of the movie theater experience, you think? I hope not. Um, they were actually asking Spielberg and everyone this at that, at that, um, that post event too. And I don't know. I think that. A lot of us are staying home and watching the streaming content because that's where a lot of quality work is being done. I And I honestly think that's why sort of the event movies are the ones that are making a lot of money now. And, you know, um, whether it's action superhero movies or, or horror movies like Get Out like or It even. I mean, that was a scream literally in right. the theater. I mean, to have the communal experience in the dark. And honestly, I mourn that. Like, I, I am such a movie buff that I, I honestly think that movies have tried and you might you might think this is unpopular opinion. I think movies have tried to mimic the TV model of being serialized so much lately with all the sequels that they've forgotten what makes them a unique medium and what might save themselves in the long run is if people want to watch the serialized thing of 30 40 episodes of Game of Thrones whatever it is, they watch it at home. But I think movies, I honestly think the solution would be 
to make more standalone, self-contained stories. I think that's the art form that we fell for. What, what the one of the movies you mentioned, The Big Sick. You commented on the fact that it was that got a big laugh, yeah. and and it also I Tanya got a big laugh. Yeah. And those are not like oh you know I need to see this on a big screen movie. These these are personal right. sort of comedies or and like little melodramas yeah. or intimate movies. And you know that's I think where the experiences you're going to yeah. lose. I mean, a lot of those movies, yeah, yeah are going to go straight to yeah. digital streaming. But to be able to share a laugh, not just yeah. awe, in a theater is something that's uh, concerning. And, well, now and there's so many distractions at home too. You know, you're gonna, you might hit the pause button and go do your laundry or make dinner, and then, or you got two screens going on. Even if you think you're giving your full attention, you might be texting somewhere, whatever. Right. I just think that it's... It destroys the, it's the a movie diff- experience. It's a different medium, and if you want to tell a story over 30, 40 hours in multiple season arcs, that's great. And there's great quality television. I'm as big a fan as anyone. I love Game of Thrones and the rest of it. But I think movies have lost their way, and they need to remember that what makes them their own medium that will make people get out of their couches and off their butts to go see them is to tell us a self-contained story. There's an art form to that, to have a beginning, middle, end. And what I lament is that a lot with a lot of the franchise (laughs) trend, a lot of times I go to the movies and I feel like I'm dropping in midway through the story. There's no stakes throughout because you know no hero's not going to die because they got to make five more of these sequels. And then you leave before it's ever over. I miss the sense of a wholeness, of a closure at the end of the movie. And to me, I think that's what makes movies different from TV. And before we jump into your, your final pick, which actually is going to address a lot sure. of the things we were just talking about. Ties in about, perfectly, actually. Ties in perfectly. The one thing I would say, when I went to go see Star Wars, and I was in that sort of doldrum three quarters of the way f- yeah. through and I was watching this scene and it occurred to me, you know what I would really want to see? I don't want to see the new Star Wars movie. I want to see the new Star Wars. Right. I want to see something new and right. different. Right. I don't want to see something that's another sequel or right. something that, that is trying right. to recreate something and not doing yeah. it really well. Yeah. But anyway. And I know it's become kind of yeah, I hesitate so to say it's because it's become kind of cliche to hate on sequels. I know. I get that, right? Oh, all you critics say that. But no, there's a reason. It's, you know, it's it's what I'm saying. It's, it's you know, anyone that studied screenwriting, there's a structure. There's a, um, you know, there's an art form to telling a self-contained story, whether it's in two hours, three hours, four hours, that you plop your money down, you go in, the, the story starts when you come in, and it's gone on this whole journey and brought us on a ride and then it wraps up at the end like and you walk out saying that was a great movie not oh that we had to stick for the post credit teaser because it's not really over don't worry like you make excuses like oh don't worry the next one will explain it to me i'm like no that's a cop out yeah give me my movie give me your movie <laughs> get so, off of my lawn so, said the 33 so, year old so this is a this is one of our <laughs> let's then go to your number one pick yes. for the year what what is that which i i know a lot of people haven't even seen this movie Mudbound by D. Reese. Everybody's like, what? What is that? The reason no one saw it, well, I saw it out at the Middleburg Film Festival, but the reason that no one saw it was because I think it played well at Sundance, but it got bought by Netflix. That was sort of the bidding where Netflix bought it, which, you know, Netflix, Amazon, they're, they're basic Silicon Valley. That's basically the new studio system now. That's where it's headed. It got bought by Netflix and was the week that it came out, I believe in October, November, it went straight to Netflix. It had a very, very limited run, not even like a very limited release, like the E Street Cinemas of the world. Just so I don't think cool. anyone really saw it. Though a lot of us have Netflix, the way this movie is shot is so much different, I swear, seeing it on the big screen than sitting um, watching it on your screen at home. It's D. Reese is this rising filmmaker, and it's the compositions in this thing. 
It reminded me of those really old throwback kind of movies that aren't made anymore, sort of like George Stevens' Giant or John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath or William Wyler's Best Years of Our Lives, like those big epic salt of the earth, in, in the case of Best Years of Our Lives, coming home from, from World War II, just like Mudbound. It's just the kind of filmmaking that, that's sort of patient, where you can study the screen and realize how she's grouping the characters together as they're, as they're bonding, and just some brilliant compositions. But I thought it was also, it, it kind of felt like I was watching like something that rose to the level of like tragic literature. I felt like it was fatalistic. Yeah, it was very Faulkner-esque. Faulkner-esque. Yeah, nice. So word. you did. Did you get to see it or some I, of it? Or? I watched it on Netflix, uh, not knowing that it was, you know, it's history. Yeah. And we talked about this before we came on. You know, I didn't enjoy it as much. And, and when, when I saw that you had it on your list mm-hmm. and it was so high, I was like, hey, I should really make some time to what go back and thinking? see it. And I should go back and, and think about it or go back and watch it again. But, you know, as I began to think about how I, my experience with it, I realized I was too screening it. Mm-hmm. I was on my laptop and I had it on. I wasn't paying attention. There were, you know, so there were intricacies of the plot that I'm sure I, I miss. I miss. It's a very subtle movie too. There was, so. there, all the stuff with the mud, with the farms, the two families. I sense that there was something a lot going on there. I'm going like to go back. We all come I'm going to go back. We're all headed to mud. But you know, again, this this speaks to what we were just talking about. About here's here's Netflix taking something that you know maybe this could have been the you know in the art houses for for several months and and gain a. Um, I wish it was in the multiplexes. I think. I mean, it has it has some big names. I think it could have. I think it's totally. Mismanaged the the sort of the rollout, I guess, well, or or maybe the fact that it's off a. On multiple mediums has hurt its chances, but I guess we should probably we should probably tell listeners what it's about, <laughs> right? What it's about? What's it's it, yeah. set in the it's set in the in the forties in the Mississippi Delta, sort of the Jim Crow era, and it's two families. One is a, a pair of uh, white farmers played by Carrie Mulligan and Jason Clark, who very famous, talented actors that we know, and then the other family is a pair of black sharecroppers, Rob Morgan and Mary J. Blige, who, you know, does a crossover and almost unrecognizable. A lot of times people walk out and say, oh, wait, that was her. So it's about these two families kind of living off the land. So maybe that's sort of where I get sort of the, the grapes and wrath and giant kind of elements. But where the best years of our lives element comes in is the war hits. And two members of the younger generations of each family, one white and one black. We have Jason Met- Mitchell. is is uh, He played Easy e in Straight Outta Compton. It was great in that movie. And then the the White family, I guess it's his bro- Jason Clark's brother, Garrett Headland, which reminds me of James Dean and Giant a lot in this movie. He looks like yeah. a dead ringer. But they sort of go off and fight in the war together and, you know, form this sort of colorblind, you know, brotherhood, friendship, best friends. But then when they come home, they return to a segregated <laughs> 40s South with a horrific villain by Jonathan Banks, who was in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And you sort of realize that the the quote unquote why we fight morality that we went to project overseas wasn't exactly what what people came back to the jason mitchell's character says over there i i was treated like a liberator and i almost miss it you know and he even has sort of a girlfriend that he left over there that he probably wasn't able to date for interracial reasons back in the 40s so i thought it was powerful socially but to me it was almost it wasn't as hit you over the head and dour and dreary as other recent movies like i mean even like 12 years of slavery or anything there's even like a glimmer of hope at the end of this one and and might even be <laughs> it does it works toward the fatalism and the, the working towards almost like a literary tragedy is what is the power of this thing i mean we're mudbound we're bound to be buried 
But D. Reese does tack on a little bit of a hopeful final shot of, you know, hey, let's maybe the world could head in a better direction. So. Well, you've given us a lot of things. I to, love it. Yeah, <laughs> I think you've given us a lot of things to think about with the movies and things to check out. Thanks for coming in. Tell people real quick about uh, Capital Culture. Oh, Capital Culture is a podcast that we do um, weekly. We post it on Fridays up at WTOP. It's myself, who's the entertainment editor, and uh, my colleague, Rachel Nania, who is the living editor. We basically take, you know, we're filing pieces every day for WTOP throughout the week, but we think the podcast is sort of a nice uh, longer form outlet where we can actually post um, the longer form interviews that we did. So if she interviews a a chef or, you know, some parenting advice kind of a thing, or if I interview an actor or a musician, it's uh, a way to a way to kind of say what's going on around town, the culture around the Capitol. Okay. Well, <laughs> everybody should check it out. It's a, it's a great podcast. It's, so it's, is yours, sir. Thank you. Thank you. We, we try. And for our local re- or, or our faithful readers out to, or listeners out there, yes, this has been a long podcast. Long podcast. Uh, next week we'll get back to... Uh, you know, slogging at uh, digital media and uh, bringing you the best content we can. Thanks for coming in, Jason. Thanks. It's always fun talking movies with you, man. You know your stuff. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of people to make a, an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. If you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism, why not support us on our Patreon campaign? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us to continue telling the story of good journalism. And while you're on our website, why not sign up for our weekly newsletter? You can get the latest news about It's All Journalism, exclusive content, reader surveys, and uh, news about upcoming live events. Just follow the link on our website to sign up for our weekly email newsletter. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean. Across the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.